John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 850.EX2631, certificate number 27201. We were talking earlier today when you had to drive me Back to my house twice. Twice. Once to pick up my computer and then once to pick up my uh, A to D converter. Were you doing a bit? A little bit of a bit. I was just seeing how much, you know, you're a little bit of a grouch about certain things. You're like, very... Like having to drive you to your house twice in 20 minutes? Yeah, you're, you're a very congenial guy in most cases. But, you know, there are certain things you're stickler about. I can imagine being your kids and learning to hate you. Well, I don't know why you wanted me to drive my car sitting on the roof like Mr. Bean. Seemed a little <laughs> just, seemed a little rude. I'm just testing you, just seeing what your what your level is. But as we were driving around, you were saying, I mean, not driving around, driving back and forth to my house. Uh, you were saying you asked me if it was time for me to get a new car because I don't have a a car because I was driving you <laughs> because places. You're driving me around, and I was like, ah, I don't, you know, I look into cars, but I just don't like any modern cars. And I pointed out some cars as we were driving. I said, there's a gray car, there's a gray car, there's a white car, there's a white car. They all look like cough drops. All cars are pretty good. And you said, well, it works for me because I do not want to express my personality in my car. That's more or less true. Yeah. You, you're not using your car as a way to say, look at me world. I still am kind of an obsessive shopper because, you know, I like to kind of feel like I... And figuring out what the smart buy is. Yep. And, and really, I put in so much time that it's, I end up, you know, because I'll do it for light bulbs. Right. And I'll Until end you up, squeeze all the joy out of it. Right. And, and I'll end up, you know, in terms of my hourly rate, I've just, I've just <laughs> bought $200 light bulbs. So I had to spend a couple hours reading up on that. But yes, I don't, uh, if your personality is not invested in a purchase, you can just be like, oh, sure. Uh, they got two colors of Subaru Forester and I'll take that one. But you've researched the Forester. You know that's the one you want, even yeah. though you don't drive I don't want to feel like I've been rooked. Right. I don't want to feel like I've bought a lemon, as we say, yes. in the, in the used sure car do. business. <laughs> we sure do say that here <laughs> in ye old time town. But it's not, it, I, I'm not troubled by, um, like, not getting a cool import car from the exact right year. And we've talked on this show quite a bit about the fact that you have a sort of down, you downplay your, your style when you were on the, the Jeopardy tournament of greatests or whatever it was yep. called. TOG. Yep, the TOG. Uh, you were, you dressed quite, quite well. You were in, in sort of a sort of J Cruz midline of, of slim fit suits <laughs> and small ties. Uh, but that was, uh. You were you were dressed, right? Was there a costume designer that put that together? He was. It, yeah, somebody came up and did a little shopping, but it was just b based on the kind of suits he'd seen me wear before. I think maybe it was a slightly nicer brand. Yeah. Yeah, no, you looked you looked great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh but if you didn't have to think about clothes, if if you if no one was ever going to look at you, if you weren't going to get a picture taken, I'm guessing that you would not 
like mm. your car. Is it cold out in this scenario? Well, let's say that it that the temperature it starts out cold in the morning and then it gets warm in the afternoon and then it gets cold after the sun. Oh, easy. Down. So yeah, just some kind of a uh, Seattle day. Yeah, just some kind of a t-shirt or short sleeve button down that I can just toss on, but then something I can put over it. Like a fleece. Yeah. So like a fuzzy fleece. A, a fuzzy fleece, or maybe um, I have kind of a soft zip-up sweater. Or, mm-hmm. Yes, it's kind of a sweatshirty thing that I like. And would, the, would those garments have any design? Would there be plaid? Is there a reason that you would pick plaid over, say, a solid color thing? No. I mean, if it was a really good plaid, I can see it. But I do kind of have the resistance to... Like, often I will see a very bold or fashion-forward choice, and I will think... It's not that I'm not interested in it. I'm just like, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I can put this over. I'm going to go with the lower risk, uh, that, that solid, uh, kind of steel blue. I know that looks good on everyone, or at least it's like all the cars. Yeah. They're all just fine. They all look equally good or bad on everyone. And, and so there is an element of it where you feel like, ah, maybe I should take a risk, but I don't, but I, I'm afraid of getting it wrong or I might yeah, I, screw I, it up. I really feel like a bigger personality could just own the, the, uh, the daring choice. I don't even know if it's related to, to appearance or body type. It really is just like, I don't want the psychic burden of having to live up to this amazing eccentric <laughs> vintage find, you know? Like, is it, am I wearing it or is it wearing me? You have no, such trouble. You have a you have a good eye for the uh, the rare and unusual, but also you have no qualms about it being kind of a big or attention grabbing choice. Yeah, that's right. I mean, among among other things, like I spent quite a bit of time thinking about my clothes, probably more, more than. Uh, but we've talked about that quite a bit on the show over time. I was at a thrift store with you, and you chose out uh, like the weirdest, brightest colored old Letterman jacket they had. Yeah, and I would not have bought a Letterman jacket. Period much less one of that color or age. One that had a bunch of, yeah, right, naked girls and firecrackers on it. <laughs> uh, but you haven't done the other thing, which is like choose a kind of matte gray that you get everything in, right? The matte gray t-shirts and shirts. I mean, just to kind of like go, because even that would be kind that's of almost, flamboyant, Yeah, right? that's almost the other way, you know? Like I, I do a even less flamboyant version of that, which is, a series of kind of identical uh, polos and button downs in the following colors, a mossy green, a steel blue, a powder blue, gray, right. charcoal. What is the most flamboyant item that you own? Not necessarily that you ever wear, but like, is there something in your closet that is like- Article of clothing? Yeah, just something that you go, wow, you know, one time I bought a white leather trench coat uh, because I was feeling really crazy that day and I've never worn it, but there it is. Anything like that? Or is yeah. there something you wear periodically that when you put it on, you're like, oh boy, here we go. Look out, day. I did buy... A Chewbacca costume. I bought a jacket that I don't wear. I, I bought some like kind of sky blue uh kind of skinny fit because they're a little bit stretchy just kind of pants pants regular pants and uh you know that you could wear with a button down or a jacket or something and i put them on once and they just really seemed very bright blue like i'm a commedia dell'arte character or something and you know and they were also kind of you know very tailored narrow leg kinds of pants so it really is like Hey, what's up with Mister uh, Sky Blue Narrow Legs here? And I think I I think I wore them once, and then just didn't feel up to it. You know, it's it's just such a moment of standing at your closet, being like, should I wear the slightly crazy thing or not? And I always, uh, I guess, take the path of least resistance. Before you were on Jeopardy, did you have how many how many times had you been on a stage? Like in front of an audience doing a show or a presentation or an event, a speech, anything. Like, like hardly ever since high school. In high school, you got up at, at uh, and did exposition or something? Yeah. I mean, I did model UN. I did yeah. a little bit of community theater. Uh, I did, uh, you know, emceed the high school talent show. Oh, you, you know, did? Like occasionally. Yeah. But uh, like, yeah, really nothing for 
like a 20 year gap. But I'm seeing the, the high school talent show is, isn't something that a, that a shrinking violet would do. You, you, you wanted a little bit of stage oh, yeah, time. I yeah. I don't mind it. I'm not like uh, I didn't, I'm not some drama club uh, narcissist, you know, look at me sing, look at me dance. But I'm a little bit of a narcissist. I'm like at a slightly lower level. Can't there's, confirm. I'm sure there's a level above drama club that's like, what would you call your level of, of narcissism? Are you saying that I'm above drama club? Well, rock band's got to be above drama club, is it not? I mean, there's a, oh, it depends, right? There are a lot of rock musicians that You're that do the like, sh- oh, don't, yeah, don't look at me. I'm just, you know, I'm just. I'm hiding behind my hair. Right. I'm, well, and also there's the blue collar school of, of uh, rock and roll, where you're just a journeyman, you're just there, Eric Claptoning, just working in your blue jeans, shoveling shoveling hay or whatever it is they think they are trying to put over on us that they're doing as they play their extremely loud and long guitar solos. But uh, yeah, you're a working class hero. Yeah, that's right. I absolutely am. But after Jeopardy, so on Jeopardy, I mean, I, I you know, I've ne- I didn't, I don't own a TV, so I've never actually seen the show, but. Seems like you went on there in your in your Mormon core clothes. Yeah, well, just in my like, I was a computer programmer. I didn't have nice clothes. I'm just wearing like J.C. Penney suits on Jeopardy for six months. Back when J.C. Penney was where proper young men bought their suits. Men's warehouse, you know, like <laughs> you know, n- n- nothing nice or interesting. Just like, look, I should have two suits, one gray and one not. Well, and I'm sorry to make this the the intro of this show just an interview program. Uh, it's it's kind of a this is a little teaser for the the. Should we show a little clip of the new movie I'm here to promote? <laughs> a little, little teaser of the of the time I'm going to interview you for my other podcast. But um, but after Jeopardy, you were both a millionaire and also uh like a like a popular figure and somebody that wanted somebody that people hired to come give presentations at their college or at their, at their company, right? You did a lot of that kind of speaker stuff. I did, but I still did. I just did it in, I was never like, I need more attention getting outfits. You just showed up in your men's warehouse. I just wore a slightly nicer, unremarkable suit or more likely khakis and blazer. Now, is that because at that point you were still comfortable in those clothes or is it because that was your brand yeah i well i feel like it's it's what people expect to see me in also it just kind of seems like more of an everyman boy i just stumbled into notoriety which is yeah. accurate it's not a pose at all oops i just accidentally won 74 jeopardies that's in a exactly row. right i didn't yeah. have a i didn't have a plan for fame i didn't um put attention grabbing stuff on my tiktok it was kind of by accident right um, but somewhere along the line, I wore a Hawaiian shirt on Leno and then I kind of regretted it. Did you really? I did. Oh, how do I see a picture of that? I don't know. Was it, was it, was it a boogaloo? No, it was, <laughs> it, this was the pre boogaloo days. I don't know if you'd even like the shirt, but it's, well, you know, I have very strong feelings about Hawaiian shirts. I probably shouldn't have worn it with those khakis. Now I'm wearing I'm it now. At it oh my Lord. Look at that. It's really a kind of a... It's more like a Southeast Asian sex tourism shirt. It is a sex tourism shirt. It's almost... It's it's like what a golfer would wear if he was in Las Vegas going to going to the best little whorehouse in Texas or whatever. That's really quite a look. Thank you. You know, having now Googled Ken Jennings on Leno Hawaiian shirt, I'm just going down here and seeing all the different outfits. You know, there was a time your hair was a lot darker. Anyway... I'm curious about this because, you know, you have, you've transitioned to being a public performer a long time ago. And, and I, I wonder about, um, how much the down, how much your down style is, has become a style. Like when you were hosting Jeopardy recently, you actually had a pocket square. Yeah. Which was not a thing you would have had in your men's warehouse days. No, that's me being costumed. Yeah. I'm wearing, oh. I'm wearing Armani on those shows. Oh, that wasn't... Oh, you are, aren't you? Look at those shoulder pads. Yeah, you, I am shouldered up there. What did you regret about the Hawaiian shirt? Uh, really, I just think you should... Uh, I don't think I should have worn a Hawaiian shirt at all, even if, I had, even if I had a much better shirt. 
I see. I really sh- shouldn't have been like, oh, here's the lighter side of Ken. Look at me. Just wear, just wear a blazer and uh, Dockers and be the nerd from Jeopardy and be the, be the, be the dad nerd from Jeopardy. Right. That's, I think in hindsight, that's what I should have done. And were you, you were trying to be fun. I mean, you were like, I get to go on Jay Leno. This right. is like, it's, it's a little bit celebratory. Yeah. yeah. Let's kick back. This is a, this is not me on Jeopardy. I'm going to, you know, shoot the, shoot the, the crap with Jay. Well, the reason I ask is that, you know, flamboyance, uh, when you think about flamboyance in a, in a male performer in particular, um, you know, we tend to think of it in terms of glam, which was a, a sort of seventies explosion of it's androgynous. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, uh, uh it's not just drugs, but an embrace of androgyny and of, and really like a precursor to, um, to like the gay rights movement. It was a Freddie Mercury and Elton John, like people who were David Bowie, um, male performers who were going to, uh, gender bend and thwart your expectations but implicit in that is the idea that uh, a male musician or performer of any kind and previous to that would not wear anything flashy because it's not masculine, right? There's, there's something, there'd be something untoward about a man dressing well, or at least in an attention grabbing way. Well, you would, you, you know, you would think that, but, but mistakenly because um, and and in a kind of Nixon goes to China way, the most flamboyant musicians of the the middle twentieth century were not the rock and rollers. If you think about the Beatles in nineteen sixty four, they're all wearing very very button down suits. You know, like like thin ties. I mean, they're wearing. Ties. Very they've tailored. Got, they've got like their moppy hair, but it was really the country and Western musicians who were wearing outfits that, in some respects, although they're designed as as suits, men's suits, um, they were as flamboyant as any costume in showbiz before or since even in cut right it's not just that they're you know i'm gonna wear a good respectable suit but i'm gonna trick it out with colors and designs colors designs and also you know very tailored in the pants yeah if you will um and what do you chalk that up to i mean for one thing the culture divide between rock and country was very different then than it is now Yes, but country western performers tended to be more um well, certainly from more conservative backgrounds and country and western music always appealed to what we would think of as the more con- socially conservative audience. Um but their dads all beat them. In, yeah, well, in, I mean, in whatever mountain hollow they were from. Sure, they were all they were all making their own whiskey. So as soon as they could as soon as they could separate themselves maybe from that previous generation, maybe they would do so. We ha- we tend to think of, um, it's absolutely true that those original country and Western stars were very flamboyant personalities. They may not have been champions of gay rights, but they, they were typically like a lot more progressive than you think of as the entrenched conservatism in contemporary country. But even of course, that's not, that's not true. You know, there are so many leftist country stars even now. But not, uh, but few of them are kind of larger than life showman types, right? I, I don't know who would. Yeah. I mean, the Dixie who, Chicks who recently changed their name to the Chicks uh, are very socially liberal, but they also sort of downplay their glam. Yeah. Right? They're, they're not. I mean, uh, a, a Jason Isbell type is, he's going to wear, you know, denim that doesn't look too different than something Clint Black wore. Uh, yeah. Although Jason might actually own a nudie suit. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised I, I if he did. Yeah. I wonder. Um, but a lot of this got, got started with uh, the star of today's episode, nudie Cone, or as he was known at birth, Nuta Kotliarenko. 
I think when I only had a casual knowledge of nudie suits, I thought they were related to the word nude or nudity, referring to something about color or cut. Right, as no, you would. It's, it's a nickname for Nuto? For Nuta. Nuta. Nuta, who was born in Kiev. He's Ukrainian. So it's, a, it's like a Russian Jewish name. Yeah. Uh, and he... Or Ukrainian Jew. He and his family left Ukraine uh, during the, the czarist pogroms before World War I. And moved to New York. He moved uh, as a as a boy, and grew up in New York as a uh, a Jewish kid that was that had to hustle to survive. He learned he learned to sew as you know would have been fairly common in a in a New York Jewish community. Was his dad a tailor? Uh, well, actually, he and his brother came to America without their parents. Um, he was eleven years old, and it was one of those like. The pogroms are, the the czar is wiping out our village, and they put their they pulled their money and sent their kids to New York. So he was he was eleven years old and landed in New York as a as like a Russian speaking immigrant and had to get busy. And he worked all kind. You know, it's a this was not uncommon at the time. As a kid, he was a shoeshine boy, and he worked as a boxer. For a little while, just trying to scrape it together, and during the depression, uh, ended up kind of an itinerant, uh, traveling the country. In fact, mm. um, it, he only, and in fact, he met his wife in Minnesota at a like a rooming house, and sort of married her and and, and had a child. Their son was Bob Dylan, and their son was Bob Dylan. That's right. No, their daughter was named Barbara. His wife was named Bobby. Uh, Bobby. Uh, maiden named Kruger, and they married and went back to New York and started sewing outfits for burlesque dancers. This was a time when burlesque was really, you know, all the rage. And um, Nudie was the person who invented sewing rhinestones onto garments. Really? He, Showgirls had never previously had little spangles. No, they might have had um, sequins, but rhinestones. What's the difference between a sequin and a rhinestone? Well, a rhinestone is a little shiny glass diamond. I see. It's not just a... a sequin is a little disc. Shiny metal disc. Yeah, that's sewn, sewn into shimmer and shine. I see. Um, and so he, was, he and his wife were making a living in New York... Uh, sewing g-strings and um and falsies you know little nipple tassels and whatnot and uh and it was kind of a you know kind of a a growing business for them um they had a they had a show or i'm sorry they had a, a store called nudies for the ladies do you think at that point nudies is a pun since he's making uh pasties and g-strings apparently almost certainly had to have been on his mind right i mean i, I like you i always heard nudie suit and as a kid i think probably blushed at the thought i i have always imagined like a uh just had a i had a friend um a friend who got a birthday video from an in-law and their whole family had put on flesh-colored unitards <laughs> and rolled around on the floor like spelling out letters like an old Sesame Street sketch and they you know spelled out the letters of the birthday girl and uh, she thought it was fun and her husband just thought it was horrifying because yeah. he didn't want to see uh, his in-laws uh, junk in outline no. but to me that's a nudie suit it's like a like a flesh colored unitard maybe you wear it on stage during a uh, a bathing scene to suggest nudity or something and I, and probably that was a component of the burlesque shows. Um, it's not really in the historic historical record whether or not uh, Bobby Kruger and Nuta came up with with Nudie as a... It seems like it, it could have legitimately been his nickname, uh, an evolution from sure. Nudie to Nudie, but then what a nice double entendre. I'm sure he didn't mind the double meaning. Uh, and he followed... Uh, the the two of them followed the kind of burlesque because they 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 went from making g strings to making the whole you know elaborate burlesque costumes, and they followed the the 
1940s migration to California, like a lot of show people did, and started making, you know, costumes for people in, uh, you know, the flamboyant edge of, of show business until in, um, in the late forties, a country singer named Tex Williams, who you may be familiar with, don't know who was, um, who was kind of floundering at the time, uh, Oh, I do know him. Right? I just looked up his, his novelty hit. That's right. A novel, novelty singer, Tex Williams. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. He was, a, you know, he, he was acquainted with Nudie, and Nudie said, you know, you need something to take your show up a notch. And Tex couldn't, uh, couldn't afford a, you know, to, to pay Nudie for this kind of flamboyant art direction, but he actually, he owned a horse and the legend goes, sold the horse and used the money to buy Nudie a sewing machine (laughs) in return for Nudie creating uh, his like stage costume. You know, I'm starting to think, trying to figure out why this started in country music. I wonder if ground zero here is uh, the outfits of Hollywood movie cowboys. I mean, if you look at what Roy Rogers was wearing on stage in the 40s, it's really elaborately designed, brightly colored, lots of fringe and trim. You know, the idea is it's got kind of got the shape of what a cowboy would wear on the range, but he's a Hollywood cowboy, so there's a lot more going on. There's, well, there's design and decoration. You're putting the suit before the horse because those Roy Rogers suits were designed by Nudie. No way. Um, he went to Roy Rogers and Dale Evans very early in this, uh, right around the Tex Williams time and said, look, let me make your clothes for you. And he was a, he was a, a spectacular self-promoter and showman. And he did this a couple of different times in his life where he said, I'll make you a suit for free and watch what happens and you'll be a lifetime customer. Hey, do you think ground zero for this might be? like the Hollywood movie cowboy. Like if I look at pictures of like Tom Mix in the 1930s, you know, all these kind of singing and daring do kind of cowboys, like here he is wearing, I mean, the picture's in black and white, but he's got like chrysanthemums on a scalloped dickie. Like they're not wearing the kind of rough, rugged, ride the range outfits. They're, they've kind of borrowed some of the vernacular of that, but they look very glitzy and show busy. Well, Tom Mix really was uh, like a turning point in Western fashion. But when you think about Western fashion uh, from the actual days of the prayer, you know, like the the mid nineteenth century, yeah, Western clothes were all uh, they were all purposeful, right? Like the pointy cowboy boots, the fringe on the chaps, the the big hat, the gloves. All those things originally had um, had a, a like a, a practical reason to look like they did. Right. But altogether, they were a fairly flamboyant outfit when you have the 10 gallon hat and the fringe and the, you know, and then at the, in the late 19th century, the kind of traveling cowboy show, the, the Buffalo bill yeah. show turned that practical cowboy look into, you know, it didn't take much to make that, that fringe garment out of a costume. Yeah. White leather right now. It's now it's something that when the star of the show rides into the arena, you want to know him as the star. You don't want him to just look like every other ranch hand. Exactly. And this also was, you know, the turn of the century, uh, early in the 20th century was sort of the, the advent of the dude ranch, the, the people from the city kind of dressing like cowboys and going out and, and the cowboy look was evolving and became almost a parody of itself, even as it, even as cowboys themselves were, you know, their look was evolving con- contemporaneous with people adopting it as a, you know, appropriating it. And there's some level of maybe people making fun of those dudes, but at the same time, that look is maybe catching on in cities or with uh, audiences if it's a if it's a performance if you think about Wrangler or Levi's even um, and Pendleton you know they were invent Pendleton basically invented the western shirt what we think of as the western shirt mm. but invented it like who is it for cowboys or or dudes um, 
and we we think of that now as kind of the authentic cowboy shirt, but but kind of like Navajo blankets. You know, there was a lot of Native American themed stuff that was really developed for tourists. It right. was never never made or sold for anything other than a than an audience. And once that catches on a few decades later, country music fans are going to have no problem enjoying somebody in a glitzed up city-fied version of, of, you know, what we wear down home. Well, and Tom Mix, uh, to your point was once silent movies came in and then Hollywood, like Hollywood, we don't think of it as a Western town now, but Hollywood was a cowboy town. I mean, all of the people in, original Hollywood, the reason that Westerns were so popular was partly that it was that, I mean, Western wear and cowboy culture were native to Los Angeles uh, as much as they were native to Oklahoma. And so Tom Mix was already kind of a dandy and on film created this larger than life costuming and so it, it it evolved very organically as as Hollywood became glitzy. So too did the natural sort of cowboy film cowboy turn into what real cowboys looked right. like, and and vice versa. If that's your ambassador to the world, that's going to change your self image, right? And so a lot of these country stars, you know, there was a lot of them really were coming from hard scrabble backgrounds. And I think you'll see in every popular art form, um, when a new art form kind of comes up out of the streets, uh, it initially develops a very flamboyant kind of vernacular because it wants to say like, we're not, you know, like we've made it. This is what making it looks like. It, uh, there's a lot of flash and um, it's kind of only rich people that can afford to look like they don't care about their clothes, right? Yeah. Ken, my hair is a big part of my identity, as you know. I'm it's like a, 98% of your identity. I'm a middle-aged guy who still has a full head of lustrous locks, but my hair is going gray fast, and it is changing texture, and it feels much thinner. I don't know if it's registering to you across the table how much less hair I feel like I have. I'm not seeing you from behind, but uh, but I'm on a game That's show now where I sometimes get, yeah, it would be a weird way to do the show, right? Yeah, sure. If we were both facing we were, that wall. Well, if we were on like a tandem bicycle or, or something. Or like just playing leapfrog the whole time. <laughs> I'm on a game show where I am sometimes seen from behind. Oh, one of those like interstitial shots? Yeah, you know, they'll, they'll show the contestants, so they'll show from behind me. And I am at the point where with those lights on there, they actually have, have to... Lens flare? No, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they actually, this is uh, humiliating, but they have to spray the crown of my head with the, with the colored stuff. Uh-oh. Because otherwise, with the lights, my hair would be looking pretty... Thin up there. So they do put on spray hair a little bit, huh? As part of your makeup. Yes, but you know what is actually working better for me than that is using prescription hair loss stuff. Oh, uh, which has really helped. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm excited slow, to slow hear about things this. down back there. Maybe this is uh, maybe this is in my future. Um, like the majority of us are going to experience male pattern baldness. By us, I mean people in this room. Uh huh. But also two out of three guys. Yikes. Experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35, Ken. Is that when it started for you? Yeah, a little earlier, actually. Yeah. But if you want to save money with generic versions of FDA-approved hair loss stuff, which uh, has been working for me, and to fill those prescriptions from home or online instead of going to a doctor's office, you could, John Roderick, use Keeps. 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 The service that uh, delivers your medication to your home every three months. No more pharmacy visits. No more doctor's office prescriptions. That's K-E-E-P-S, Keeps. How else were you going to spell it? Well, Q-U-I-E-P-S. Yeah, don't do not do that. K-E-E-P-S. Uh, K-E-E-P-S. And, you know, here's something I've never understood. Nobody's going to abuse hair loss medicine, why does it require a doctor's visit and a pharmacy experience? You don't, you don't think people, some people would just suck it down with a straw or oh, just slather it on, try it as an enema, bathe in it all the time. Yeah, baby. Oh, try it as an enema. What a terrible idea. That's not where you want hair. Don't do any of that. And actually you want to, what you want to do is do this preventatively. Like oh, it, oh, it, it takes like four to six months to see 
results from right. s- from some of these medicaments. So get started now is what you're saying. Yeah, don't wait till you've already lost the hair because at that point all you can do is put on the brakes. Well, now you're now you're getting me going here. Which I part? Was, well, I was just going to wait till I lost my hair, but you're saying no, get ahead of this for once in your life, John. Be proactive. Okay, all right. If are you ready to take action? I'm, I'm getting closer and closer all the time. If you're ready to prevent hair loss now, go to keeps keeps dot com slash omnibus. And you'll get your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus to get my first month free? That's right. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. So Nudie's arrival in Los Angeles with his sort of flashy burlesque sewing style, and along with his, you know, his wife Bobby's kind of, she was really a, a, a partner in his enterprise. Like a, um, like a sewing partner, or she runs the business, or both. Uh, it it you really get the feeling that he was an incredible showman and a and a friend to all. Like he he made a lot of relationships with uh, these people, and I think did a lot of the tailoring. But it was as early as the nineteen fifties. He already was having the stuff tailored by others. Most famously, a man who became his son-in-law, um, a Mexican immigrant by the name of Manuel Cuevas, who was also, a uh, like a tailor and he'd come from, um, he'd come from Mexico to the United States kind of doing, uh, embroidery and, and then was making prom dresses, I guess, and was like kind of famous for quinceanera dresses <laughs> right. and prom dresses in in Mexico. He moved to the United States and started doing men's tailoring. And actually, before he even worked for Nudie, he was making suits for uh, the Rat Pack types and had become, and then gradually started making suits for the Rat Pack and was tailoring Frank Sinatra. And through that, you know, developed a reputation and eventually ended up working for Nudie. Pretty young guy, but he did, he actually did the tailoring on a lot of the nudie suits. Um, and Bobby was, yeah, was kind of the, seems like nudie's business manager, seems like um, someone that that pushed him to be his, as flamboyant as he wanted to be. But after he, you know, after he started, after he developed for originally Tex Williams and then Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, this style, this new rhinestoned suits made out of kind of very, what would have been considered flashy colors. Um, he became a real hit among that generation of country stars. And this was also the dawn of the, t- the television era. This was a time when you started to, it was the, the dawn of the, the big concert era where playing a live show you're suddenly standing on a stage. You don't have very good amplification, but you're playing to a couple of thousand people. That would have that would have been fairly rare to happen before this era, before the era of amplification. You couldn't have really done it. Certainly not with a guitar. But you want to wear something big and theatrical. Oh yeah, because you know you want to put on a show for the people at the back of the room, and that was always a motivation behind what people wore as stage costumes in in the rock and roll days, because if you're in a big band, if you're standing in front of a big band, you got 30 people on stage, uh, that are making the, the big noise. But if it's just you and a drummer and a bass player, you know, like how do you fill that space? And you can fill it with rhinestones. It turns out. And what are the, and what does that mean? The rhinestones are like just in kind of patterns. Yeah. Like the thing, the suit is not blanketed with rhinestones. Sometimes. Oh yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, designs, you know, um, flowers and, and, uh, horseshoes and pistols and, you know, a lot of wagon wheels, Porter Wagner yeah. had a, had a famous wagon wheel suit. Um, Hank Williams was a big fan of those nudie suits and you see him in them. Uh, and he famously, Nudie famously, uh, uh, and it was Manuel actually who sewed it, but designed the gold lame suit that Elvis wore that, um, that you see on the cover of his record 
50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. Like this. Is that like post army? That's, is that Vegas era Elvis? Yeah. 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 Well, no, not Vegas Elvis. It's like fifties Elvis. Although nudie did later and Manuel did, uh, design Elvis's seventies jumpsuits, bell bottom jumpsuits with his big Cape, all that rhinestone stuff. It was all coming from nudie. Uh, and in, so in the sixties business was booming and it started to, he's his, his costume started to, uh, be in demand by people that weren't even country and Western stars. I mean, he was still, uh, he was still tailoring for George Jones and the like, but he suddenly was making nudie suits for John Wayne. And, uh, and then into the seventies, he made a suit for John Lennon. I assume it, did it filter into rock? Like I'm looking at the cover of, um, Gilded Palace of Sin, the Flying Burrito Brothers record, and Graham Parsons has an amazing nudie suit. And, you know, he came from, you know, he's kind of the linchpin of that kind of country rock, you know, moving between the California, the Laurel Canyon guys and the actual country musicians. Was he, did he help bring it to the rock scene? You know, Graham was kind of a rich kid. Yes. Uh, But, um, yeah, you have to be able to afford one of these too, right? I mean, what was happening then was, there was a tremendous now a collision of kind of all musical forms there in the late sixties and cultural forms, right? Why is John uh, Wayne wearing a nudie suit? Um, (laughs) That just seems like John Wayne trying to keep up. Well, and that's the thing, right? But you've also got, I mean, all of the Motown groups are transitioning from the, sort of square suits of the early sixties to a lot more sequins and flamboyance. I mean, obviously the, the girls were wearing sequins, but, but But even the men now have big lapels. Yeah. And, 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 and starting to think of themselves as costumed. I mean, if you watch the Beatles go from revolver to Sergeant pepper, there's just like, it's a complete sea change in the way that they're presenting themselves and the, the, the flamboyance they're prepared to express. But also, as you say, there is a, there's a moment and a lot of people credit it to Mike Nesmith and the monkeys, but there's a moment (laughs) when country music and rock and roll collide and form what becomes country rock. Uh, and Graham Parsons was a major a major figure in that transformation, you know, and, and he's responsible for the Eagles and America and everything that follows. He's responsible for the Eagles. I'm afraid so. Oh man, he had it coming then. I'm afraid so. But, but you know, the, like nudie, nudie bridged all of that completely. Elton John had a nudie suit at the height of his, uh, at the height of this era, right? He was making suits for, because well, yeah, because Elton John's still doing his his Western guy, right? Tumbleweed Connection, Madman Across the Water kind of thing, but it's glammed up because it's Elton John. It's super glammed, and Graham Parsons's suit is maybe one of the most famous nudie suits because, and again, this was also sewed by Manuel, but it had uh, marijuana leaves <laughs> yes, and uh, and pharmaceutical drugs and naked girls and. Cocaine and hashish and, um, and Graham actually. It's like a tattoo. It's like, yeah. it's, it's a precursor to tattoo culture. You, you tell Nudie and Manuel what you want to rock. And apparently he worked on it with them for a long time. And Nudie was such a, uh, such a personable guy by all accounts. Um, a lot of these characters went in and would just hang out at Nudie's shop because he was such a fun hang. Uh, and, And they were like, they were always kind of evolving to suit. I mean, they didn't want to, they, they kind of put no limits on the, on, on expressing the vision of, of whoever it was that came in looking for some flash. And it was actually Manuel, according to, uh, according to legend that initially, or that, that made the decision to, to dress Johnny Cash in all black. Johnny Cash came in and, and said, you know, make me four suits and for his next tour. Cause this was during a time where the, uh, these, 
these stars would get a suit for their tour. Mm. So this was the tour that they wore the the powder blue. That's suits. not even for the audience. That's them. That's just that's for yeah, them. You yeah. know, that's an excuse to wear a new clothes. Yeah, this is my tour suit, and I get yeah. and I get to have a new it's one. A little these, treat for me. These suits were not cheap. They were. What do they cost? They were thousands of dollars at the time, and a real investment. Marty Stewart tells a story of going in looking for a nudie suit, and nudie's like, "Yeah, the suit started twenty five hundred bucks, and this was like, you know, whatever a year's wage." And it was Manuel that kind of took him aside as he was dejectedly walking out the door and said, look, one day you're going to be able to afford any nudie suit you want. But today I'm going to make you a shirt, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to make you a, a, a shirt on the house. And when, you know, when you, when you've made it, come back and see us. And he did, you know, Mar- it's, it's great salesmanship, but Marty Stewart became a big nudie suit um, owner once he, you know, or, or I guess collector. Uh, collecting nudie suits is a real thing. Porter Wagner, who had a very early nudie suit, nudie suit, over the course of, like he had this famous peach-colored suit, over the course of his career, he ended up owning 52 different nudie suits. Wow. But the Graham, Par- like Graham Parsons actually had nudie suits made for the entire Flying Burrito Brothers. And that was the moment where it was no longer, like when you look at the cover of that album, um, the Gilded Palace of Sin. I mean, I remember looking at it and wondering. I like Chris Hillman's suit better. Actually, I know it's a great I like suit, that right? blue one. But doesn't it read as a little ironic? Um, it's a little tongue in cheek, right? They are, yeah, because they're doing this high country kind of like uh, just folks music, and in those suits with the long hair. Feels a little bit tongue in cheek. Maybe like we're taking over these kind of rural conservative signifiers. They're not going to know what hit them. Yeah, we got we got marijuana leaves on them now. But yeah. but also, um, it's anti. And we've talked on this show so many times about that kind of return to nature vibe of the 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 folk revivals. And this is kind of throwing it in the face of that too, right? It's a little bit like Dylan goes electric. Um, They're doing traditionalist music or or a modified version of it. What if Dylan had been wearing gold lame when he went electric? Dylan actually famously has uh, had a nudie suit period too. If you think about it, you can you can picture Dylan in his absolutely nudie suit. He should have a Christian period one with doves and (laughs) doves and crosses. Uh, ZZ Top yes. then takes over from Graham Parsons. ZZ Top was, uh, you know, on the cover of Fandango. They're all wearing nudie suits. Um, and then it became a kind of, it got, it got very detached from country and went into rock in a way that sent over the course of the years, like very weird mixed messages um, because it, it still does convey a Hank Williams connection, but like it's got a heritage. If you think of the, the suit that Jimmy page is the famous suit with the dragons down the bell bottoms mm-hmm. and the, and the velvet jacket with the embroidery that he wore without a shirt. Uh, that's, that was made by nudie. Like Jimmy Page went in and said, "Hey, I want you to make a suit for me, but I, I don't want any wagon wheels on it. I want it to be like this devil suit." And they were fully into it. And that's one of his iconic. I mean, that's the, if anything, the most iconic Jimmy Page look. Right. It's funny that the Western imagery turned out to be kind of coincidental to the look. Like a nudie suit still looks like a nudie suit, whether it's whether it's dragons or whether it's, you know, lassos and stuff. Yeah. Right. But, it, but, but the embroidered and rhinestoned men's suit yeah. became a, uh, became a, a kind of a blank slate in a way. And then you watch it, you watch it really explode. I mean, and this, this is now like Elvis and his jumpsuits, and, and, and Manuel also is credited with putting Elvis in his first jumpsuit, 
C- Colonel Parker was like, he's he's doing Vegas and he needs a new look. And Manuel was like, check it out. And when somebody has gained a lot of weight, what you want to do is put him in a jumpsuit. <laughs> and Elvis was not into it, but then he put it on. He was like, hey, I can really inhabit this as long as it's got a cape, as long as you put a full floor-length cape on it. Um, but then we saw, so for instance, um, Mike Mills throughout oh, the yeah. REM years was wearing a nudie suit. And you don't think of that as a projection of country and Western. They're from the South, I guess, so you can get away with it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Nudie himself became a real icon of of Hollywood and was a, an incredibly flamboyant dresser himself and attended and was kind of welcomed everywhere, invited everywhere, beloved by everybody. He uh, Part of his style was he wore mis- mismatched cowboy boots. <laughs> so he, and it was a, you know, he he described it as being something that kept him in touch with his roots. Like he was born a poor Ukrainian boy. And he always wanted to remember that even in his $25,000 sequined suit by always wearing mismatched cowboy boots. But in the sixties, he also ventured out into customizing cars. We come back to customized cars. He loved to drive a flamboyant car and he did the customization work himself. He would go, he would go buy pistols, real real pistols, Colt, you know, six-shooter, single-action revolvers. And he would weld the six-shooters onto the car as like door handles, gear shifts. He would cover the dashboards in Morgan silver dollars. Did art cars even exist at this time? I mean, probably not so much, right? Th- this was a... This was a... Because um, Seattle's now full of them, by the way. Art cars. Well, I, everybody super glues little uh, hula yeah, girls to I saw the some, dash. I saw some woman at Sunset Hill Park with a My Little Pony-themed car, and I was checking it out, and she she caught me, and I was like, is this your car? And she was like, yes. And I said, well, tell me about it. And she's like, well, have you ever heard of an art car? And I said, <laughs> well, yes. Seattle's got a thousand. You can't swing a cat in Seattle heading an art car, but most of them don't have My Little Ponies on them, ma'am. But yeah, gluing stuff to your car. Is did, that a, did she did she tell you all about it? Oh yeah, she walked me through who the who the ponies were and wh- why she picked the one for the hood ornament and you know, and it's kind of a project in progress for a lot of these people as it kind of metastasizes over more and more of the chassis. Right. Or the body. Uh no, you can say well, sure, body and chassis depending on how 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 committed to it they are. Sure. Um friendship is magic and I hope that you had an opportunity to say that to I feel her. Like we're friends now me and her. Uh, Nudie was also the guy that put the the giant steer horns on the front of the Cadillac. <laughs> no. Yeah. So his car had all of those, what, what ended up becoming Smokey and the Bandit uh, cliches. Yeah. Uh, the big steer horns. The, uh, Did he invent truck nuts? The, he didn't. <laughs> the cars were all, uh, were all white. Uh, he did use a Cadillac occasionally, but mostly he used... Pontiac Bonnevilles because they were the longest car there was. And and he would weld on bumper extensions to make them longer, like extended bumpers that you could actually stand on kind of like parade bumpers, (laughs) really, really flamboyant cars. And they were so striking that in the 1960s, Pontiac gave him a free car every year. As promotion, they'd give him a free white Bonneville convertible. Just because it's free advertising to see what he does with it? Yeah, and he'd drive it around for a while and then, you know, give it away to a friend. Uh, He was, you know, apparently a very generous guy. He made 18 art cars in the course of his career. Uh, Only nine survive, but those are, um, like, incredibly valuable collector's items now. There's one at the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, There's one at the... I think the Roy Rogers Museum. Wow. So these fantastic cars. And I, I think uh, Roy Rogers used to drive his as a daily driver until uh, he started, uh, people started prying the Morgan dollars off every time he parked. <laughs> like you park in front, probably, you know, the rise of the price of silver. Yeah, this was probably some Carter era recession. Uh, but then. Oh, and you know, I think uh, I I, I want to mention just that um, that one of the major collectors of nudie suits is a Belgian singer uh, by the name of Bobby Jean Chopin, and he is 
and I, I'm sure I've butchered his name. It might be Bobby Jean, but I think it's Bobby Jean. Uh, he is a huge Belgian rock star, so much so that he has a, uh, there's like an amusement park called Bobby Jean Land. What? In Belgium. So he's the Dolly Parton of Belgium? And he has, he was a friend of Nudie and he collected 35 different Nudie suits. It's it's totally his, uh, it's his look, it's his signature sort of like, wow. he's the Belgian, the Belgian Elvis, as they say. The Belvis? They don't actually say that. <laughs> uh, but recently there's been a revival. So, so, um, Nudie himself died in 1984 and his wife, Bobby and his granddaughter, Jamie Lee continued, continued the business for another 10 years. The house of Nudie, uh, the house of Nudie selling Nudie suits and, and, um, and eventually, uh, Bobby couldn't keep it going anymore. And Jamie even now, and Jamie was married to Manuel, right? That's the, oh no, wait. No, Barbara was married to Manuel. His daughter, Barbara, who died of cancer, was married to Manuel. Manuel took, Manuel split off from Nudie at a certain point and started his own, his own shop in Hollywood, kind of down the block, called Manuel Couture. And a lot of the Nudie customers kind of patronized them both. A lot of the, the, the very famous outfits were actually created at Manuel Couture, although they're still known as nudie suits. And Manuel, um, you know, Manuel, I think, still makes suits to this day. Uh, but there's there's lately been a kind of revival of them in indie rock. Uh, Jeff huh. Tweedy and Jack White, if you can think of them in their nudie suits. I'm not sure right. whether or not Jason Isbell has one, although I bet he does. But... Jack White definitely went through a nudie suit phase, and so did Jeff Tweedy. Are these vintage then? No, they're still having them made. And um, and they, you know, it's kind of a point of pride. Like, I wanted one um, at a certain point in the mid-2000s. What do they go for now? They're a fortune. Uh, they're like eighteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. For a new one and maybe a used one more? I don't even know if you could find a used one. Oh. I mean, I think, and particularly somebody my size, I don't think you're going to find a used nudie suit, but they do, when they go for sale, they're usually associated with somebody famous and they sell for a bunch of money, yeah. partly because of the connection. It's, it's a fan item. The fan item, right. Um, but, you know, these days, just recently, because, oh, uh, do you remember um, Jenny Lewis went through a yeah. nudie suit phase, right? And she's very old Hollywood and connected to that kind Plus of... kind of the country rock thing. Country rock yeah. thing. But just in the last couple of years, Post Malone started wearing not real nudie suits, but, you know, suits, custom suits in the nudie suit vernacular. Yeah. And his Gen Z fans have been kind of burning up the internets, um, sort of celebrating Post Malone and his in his radical, you know, who would dare wear these suits kind of style. Does that mean knockoff Chinese nudie suit style suits are coming to Target soon? Well, you can if you go online now and Google uh, nudie suit for sale. What it takes you to is a bunch of places on Etsy. And yeah, you can get like, Fake nudie suits for ninety nine dollars at Shinesty. Um, <laughs> you sure it's not shy nasty? Ooh, shy nasty. Uh, there's a there's a nudie suit ish jacket on Wish for fifty seven twenty five, and um, and his daughter Jamie Lee still runs. Uh, the nudie nudies rodeo tailors website and they have a you know they have a gift shop she she's got a coffee shop aspect of it you can there's a they opened a bar in nashville and uh and his cars there are a few of his cars that are visible at the van nuys airport at uh 
at like a museum called Valley Relics. So there's still, uh, you know, Jamie Nudie can still probably put a suit together for you if you've got the cash. I do have the cash, but do I have the guts? If I... Do I have the style? Do I have the flair? If I encouraged you to get a peach-colored nudie suit covered with pot leaves and pills... <laughs> what if it wasn't <laughs> pot leaves and pills? What if it was like all in uh, blue Jeopardy monitors or something? Right. What if it... Yeah, if it's... It, what if it, it, it's all just... It's all just game... <laughs> it's dollar signs and Plinko chips all the way down. And then on the back, a huge embroidered rhinestone face of Alex Trebek. Absolutely. And that concludes Nudie Suits, entry 850.ex2631, certificate number 27201, in the Omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, in case you're not aware, you can find at Omnibus Project in our era on, uh, on almost any social media platform. I'm at Ken Jennings. Uh, John, not so much, but you can find him on his Patreon. Uh, those, yeah, those Nudie Suits aren't going to buy themselves, so... If you'd like to support our show, you can do so at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, if you would like to uh, email us uh, corrections about uh, Tom Mix or the Van Nuys Airport or whatever you want, you can send them to the omnibusproject at gmail.com uh, and get a snarky response from us. Mm-hmm. You can mail us... With, a, with the snark emoji? emoji. You can, if your attic has a, has nudie suits in it, like it, it might not be John size, but I could probably get into it. You could send it to, uh, Omnibus Project, PO Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, and John and I will just dress like sweethearts of the rodeo from now on mm-hmm. when we do the show. You know, he, Graham, Graham got one, got a nudie suit for Keith Richards and well, you never saw a more ill-fitting match than Keith apparently couldn't be bothered to actually go into the tailor. <laughs> Just didn't look right. Uh, well, I mean, Keith's skin kind of looks rumpled and ill-fitting. So that's exactly right, and a little bit rhinestone. <laughs> we call that ketoma. Uh, you can uh, find your fellow futurelings on Facebook or Reddit or Discord or wherever the word futurelings produces anything but confused Cyrillic. Find uh, your fellow futurelings. Look for the record with them on the cover. Uh, or label, I guess. Label, right? Label. Look, look for the record with me, me on, on the la- cover. There we go. It's label, I think. No, it's cover. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, yay, I was right. You were. But then I didn't believe in myself. No, and then you, you doubted yourself. There's really a lesson there for the kids. You left the light blue pants of your conviction <laughs> in the fear <laughs> closet. I just feel like I'm going to be walking against the sky and it'll look like I don't, I don't have any legs, like a, like a weatherman wearing green. Ken is a ghost, a nude ghost. I feel like I do have one jacket that's even weirder and more ill-advised than that, and I, or, you know, at least bolder. And I cannot remember what it is because I never wear it, presumably. I really hope that there's a futureling whose grandfather was a country star who has a medium-sized nudie suit... Who's like, you know what? This thing is probably worth $25,000, but I'm going to send it to Ken Jennings. I mean, I can't believe that people send us $17 Lego sets. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, but I'd be very surprised if anyone wants to send me a nudie suit. You know, I, it's entirely possible that Roseanne Cash is listening to the show right now. <laughs> do you think she, uh, she used to, do, I don't think Johnny Cash wore my size. So, Oh, uh, well, I don't know. How big is Johnny Cash? He's not that big. I don't know. Well, not to say that you're he not just big. Seemed, he just seemed so larger than life. Well, so do you. <laughs> exactly. That's not the impression I believe I can give or am trying to give. <laughs> uh, the Patreon. You know what? I may have just done the whole outro. Did you do the? Oh, you did. You do the actual address. The PO Box five five seven mailing address. Yeah. I did. Okay. All right. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, when we did not have colorful plumage natural to our feathered bodies, but instead had to decorate ourselves with cotton, peacocked cotton, and in probably the case of most nudie suits, a polyester blend. Uh, We have no idea how long our bankrupt and bereft system and civilization survived. (coughs) We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Although, if it is a catastrophe that allows me to have natural plumage, I might welcome our 
squid overlords. Now, how do you feel like that's going to happen? I mean, if it changes your DNA, it just means yeah. you're more likely to have feathered offspring. It doesn't mean you get feathers. I mean, some sort of mu- mutation that creates feathers on me. Maybe, maybe I live forever and grow feathers with my mind bullets. Yeah, bioengineering. Yeah, that's right. Okay. What I'm looking for is something that allows me to, well, first of all, fix my teeth. Is the plumage going to help with that? Well, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm talking to futurelings or our alien overlords who are listening, who are going to put me in a machine that like corrects all the mistakes that God made. Couldn't you just get an Invisalign? If only. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.